newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis from veteran journalists trying to have some voice in what's going on still. Here we are, and we're hopeful to join us for this conversation. Thanks for being here. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, now doing the Upstate American, if you've ever heard of that. Judy Patrick, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette, vice president of the New York Press Association. You doing okay? I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're glad <laughs> to be here. And Barbara Lombardo was executive editor of the Saratoga the record of Troy. Are you teaching this semester, by the way? I am off for the summer. Isn't that great? And back for the fall. Uh Aha. Professor Lombardo. We can talk sometime about the relative respect that you get between being a professor and an editor. Which one is actually more esteemed or more targeted? For Both mm. highly respected. Oh, yeah. Coveted <laughs> positions. It gets you good tables at restaurants. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm, I have a master's degree, not a doctor, so I can't say Dr. Lombardo. Oh, yeah. Requested a table. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, we're going to talk in this program about obituaries, about bogus stories, and about the gender beat. But before that, we actually have a piece of mail that I want to read and and get y'all's reaction to it. Y'all is what we say up here in upstate New York. Here is Willard in Norfolk, Connecticut, writes that it's good that the media called out George Santos for his lies, but it's sad to see your panel holding this up as a shining example of the media's contribution to society. It's just another instance of the media spending way too much time on the latest sensational story, the shiny red ball syndrome. Where are the stories... Willard writes, on widening inequalities of revenue and wealth in this country and the tax structure that supports them, or the concrete manifestations of structural racism, or what a Russian victory in Ukraine would mean for the world order. Yes, these are heavy lifts, but who, if not the media, is going to lead the American public toward an understanding of complicated issues? We got the point about George Santos pretty quickly. Best, Willard. Well... Well, he mentions our shining examples of good journalism, and I have seen those. What George Santos was was an example of a wild and crazy story that was almost unbelievable and captured the nation's attention in a way that line politicians hadn't done before. And we were tracking his demise, and, and not so much his demise, his continued seat in power is interesting. He's not the most important politician in Washington, but at this point, he's one of the top 10 most interesting ones. Hmm. Yeah, I'd also mention to our letter writer, I think, for those comments and, I know we and love to our letter. readers, Write us uh, more. that it's not an either-or that we can and we actually do do both. And granted, you're going to hear more about Santos than some of the heavier issues on a day-to-day basis, but I don't think there's a failure of the part of journalism. I think that that's still a good story, and we do both. Right. I think there's been a lot of coverage, not enough 
for Willard, but about the inequalities in wealth and the impact in society, the loss of the middle class. Also, it is true that sensational and interesting stories are not necessarily things to avoid. Some things are intrinsically sensational, let's say, you know, and that doesn't mean that you should not report them just because they're interesting. And there is something big that is represented by the George Santos story. That is the power of voters to be deluded, let's say, or steered astray by cleverly lying politicians. The fact that that can happen if you have the right combination of funding and if you have revenue streams to politicians that aren't transparent, which is huge, those are important stories for democracy. So I don't think that George Santos is an inconsequential shiny red ball, as Willard refers to it. I the think it's saddest a big story. part to the Santos story for me is that the little local newspaper tried to tell their voters, yeah. and in a sense the world, but at least to tell their communities, that this guy was a fraud and a liar, and that even a Republican-leaning publication was saying, steer away from this guy, and nobody paid attention. Right. The news leader, it's called, on the North Shore of Long Island, and nobody paid attention to it. And so it is actually a story of a failure of journalism in that regard, that it wasn't until the New York Times reporters dug into it further. But it's also part of a, an important journalism story, in the which is why we discuss it on this program, in the sense that with the devastation of legacy newsrooms as a result of the digital revolution, there just aren't as many reporters around to pick up those kinds of stories. Right, and the other media hook was that this was in New York City. I mean, the media capital of the U.S., perhaps of the world, it's not like this was in Alaska or in a remote area of Louisiana, and there should have been more media coverage. Yeah. I mean, there are... And, and an important position that was up for grabs. You're right. In, in some respects, it was a media failure because the stories were written, but the stories weren't believed or did not have wide enough dissemination to make a difference. Right. And as we said on this program, the failure was, unfortunately, there is Newsday, the great newspaper on Long Island, where I spent 11 years as a reporter of your chief national correspondent. And I feel that it would have been picked up by a beat reporter paying attention if the beats were as well-staffed as that, they used to be. That might be true. And as far as the other issues that the letter writer mentions, which are important, I think looking ahead, there are opportunities for the media to keep those issues front and center, keep bringing them up. And as we're reporting on candidates for national office, for president and Congress and state, we need to remind readers what's going on on those issues so that they can make intelligent choices. The issues Willard raises, structural racism, inequalities in wealth, what the impact really is of the Ukraine war. Actually, Barbara, you, you were saying before we went on the air, and this might be an example of what Willard's referring to, the impact of coverage of the, let's say, failure to launch of the DeSantis campaign, the disaster, is that what Donald Trump Jr. called but, um, it? Um. <laughs> <laughs> but you were making the point, as we were just about to turn on the microphone here, that that was a problem in that the bigger issues of his campaign were kind of obscured by the fact that we were paying attention to his failure on Twitter. Yeah, who really cares that his opening statement was marred by glitches? To me, it was a typical example of the media just getting sucked into the easy and sensational type story of the moment. And we've already ascertained that Twitter has tons of problems on its own. At one point, was an, it's an inside organization for journalists like to use it, and now it's got the Elon Musk angle to it. It's kind of a mess. And beyond just mentioning that it was a glitch, they, the media, should be concentrating on his positions. 
Right. And traditional media outlets, the bigger papers, the bigger news outlets are covering some of his policy positions. But you're right. The story of the day after this Twitter launch was the failure of the launch itself. And it's an issue of style over substance. That's a great phrase. And, and we're feeding into the Trump narrative once again. But what do you do, Judy, about that when you know that a lot of the issues, such as those that Willard raises, wealth inequality, that is really hard to draw readers' attention to it, hard to bang people over the head with the reality of that. I mean, it is a reality that the American middle class has been shrinking since 1980, and there are significant tax policies to blame for that. I mean, I have... When I was the editor of the Times Union, we did many, many stories about that, many editorials about it. But how do you draw attention to those important structural issues when people are really interested in uh, what's lively or what's fun? Right. But all of us at this table, we've done it. Yeah. You personalize it. You take one issue at a time and you examine it and you look at all sides and you put a person or several people at the front of it, you make it human, and you do it with good writing. I think that's one of the things we forget about nowadays. You need good writers, and a good writer can capture someone's attention if people take the time to read. But, I mean, you throw them the comics, and you throw them the horoscope, and you throw them the silly story about a festival. Not that festivals are silly, but... Um, <laughs> but they're enjoyable. Light, you know? They're lighter. Yeah, yeah sure. Light. But, I mean, we've done it. We know it can be done, and it can be done in all sorts of media. In fact, di digital offers the, uh, us the opportunity to bring video in, to bring audio, to bring graphics in a whole new way. We just have to try harder. The problem is that we're doing it with one hand tied behind our back because we don't have the, the resources we used to. Mm -hmm. Because that's all going to the big digital platforms. That all the advertising dollars that used to support journalism in this country are going to Google and Facebook, mostly, and to other digital platforms. And that's why legacy newsrooms have been hollowed out. But it is, yeah, you're right, great storytellers, writers, video producers, audio producers, that's essential. And smart editors and executive producers, let's say, giving ourselves a little bit of pat on the back. If you're commissioning reporters to do that stuff, and if you're saying we need to do a piece that looks at the impact of, for example, what the cuts to the SNAP funding and that is the work requirements that the Republican budget proposals would place on people. What would be the impact of that on real people? And these stories are complicated and they're nuanced. I mean, it's not black and white because you'll find stories where people may be abusing the system. So you have to tell the whole story, but you have to tell it in a way that's truthful, that you get the main point. You really have to spend some time and really figure out how it works and how it's not working, what its impact is. And then you have to do some real data analysis to get a broad vision of what's happening, I think. And it's not something, it's not a slapdash story. Again, it's something where you need substantial journalism that's difficult and expensive to produce. And in the bigger papers can do it. The smaller papers are having a harder time doing it. It's One of the challenges with that that I can't figure out how to solve is keeping those types of stories in the forefront so that SNAP is a great example because I don't think people generally understand that it's not a handout for lazy people, that there are working poor. And they, I mean, there's plenty of people out there who know because they are the working poor, that they're struggling, they're working full-time jobs, you know, they qualify for SNAP, and how that affects so many people. And you can do a great story, visually, writing, interviews with people. But then once you've done that story, trying to keep 
it out there. It's not enough to say, well, we did that story last month. Yeah. Now, there was a time you were the editor of a Gannett paper, and there was a time when Gannett had a series of issues that it determined were the key, like eight or nine issues that were the key topics that they thought uh, papers needed to address constantly. Does that sound right? It sounds vaguely familiar, like most <laughs> things in my memory. But the, um, And after we were owned by Gannett, we were owned by other companies as well. But I do remember that they had us meet with our own communities, not just to say what Gannett Company said we should do, but I remember having community advisory boards and having people write in as well to say, what are the topics that we should be covering in our community? The difficulty and now is with the newsrooms hollowed out, with so few people actually even having time to do that kind of thing, because so many of the papers, well, your own former newspaper and The Record in Troy, both are a shadow of their former selves yeah. in terms of staffing. Absolutely true. I never felt like we had too many people. No, never. And our staff was always what I would consider small, but little did I know how small it could become. It was small. It was difficult to do everything you wanted to do. We certainly couldn't cover all of the communities that we would consider part of our territory, or at least not cover them well, maybe cherry-picking, kind of like the Times Union used to do to us uh -huh. and still does in, in Saratoga <laughs> and, the, and the Gazette. Yes. So, yes, yeah. knowing what's important to your community based on the people that care to tell you, that was useful back then. Absolutely. But, you know, but keeping the story alive or making it evergreen is something at least you can do in the digital realm because mm -hmm. back in the day when we just relied on print, paper went out one day and the next day the paper was gone or in the trash. At least now we have a digital version of that great investigative piece that we can keep on the homepage or that we can keep promoting on social media or we can link to as further stories develop. I mean, that's the good news. That's a great Absolutely. point. One thing that leaps to mind is the Times Union's coverage of the opioid crisis when that was really front and center in the news and they had a drop down on the website, but you could access those stories that had already taken place mm -hmm. and... Yeah, we um, it was it. a great resource. Mm -hmm. And partnerships also help. The Times Union did a great partnership with WMHT so that there was great video storytelling. And, you know, WAMC here now has news partnerships with other public broadcasters around the state and the region. And so you kind of try to make up for the diminished newsrooms, but it's hard. Anyway, thank you, Willard, for a thoughtful letter. And we will all do what we can. And if you all want to have your voice heard, here and want us to talk about that media at wamc.org media wamc.org we like to get letters but we don't get them that we often. don't get many letters so let us know folks what's on your mind what you think about what's going on in the media otherwise we'll just tell you what we think is going on and what do we know <laughs> what do we, we know i mean after all so we promised that we were going to talk about obituaries and there is a reason folks the term is news peg that is why you do a story on a particular topic at a particular time the peg for this is that jim brown died Jim Brown, of course, arguably the greatest football player who ever lived. Most people listening to this are too young to remember because he was playing from 1957 to 65. But he was, if you see the old films of those games, an unbelievable way that he could break through defenders. Anyway, Jim Brown was a guy who then went on to become an actor in some notable action films like The Dirty Dozen. Then he went on to be a leading figure in the civil rights movement. But here's the thing, and the reason why obituaries matter in the key obituaries about Jim Brown, there was a lot of coverage of the other side of Jim Brown. That is, that as the New York Times obit put it, his name was tarnished by accusations of violent conduct against women. He was, in fact, a serial abuser of women. A complex story about a guy. And it does raise questions. 
you probably all have stories of this, as I do, about readers being incensed about obituaries that we would publish that would raise unfortunate aspects in the lives of people who had died with the claims from people. Why did you have to bring that up? Even when he's dead, you're still kicking him when he's dead. But I think that this has something to do with the appropriate responsibility of the media, right? Oh, yeah. We've all gotten those calls. And typically they're from family members who are outraged, particularly if it's a politician who was ousted from office or criminally indicted or indicted. But if you're doing a news obit, the news obit has to include the life story. And that includes all elements of it. If you don't include it, you're lying to your audience. I mean, in some respects, these paid obituaries where the people can put in whatever they want about the family member and it goes on a special page that I think everybody's pretty clear now that these are paid ads. But if you're going to do a news obituary, you have to include everything in it. They also will complain about the play of the story. If right. it goes on A1, if it's on the top of the website, and the headline says that so-and-so, you know, accused of murder, died, I mean, they'll be unhappy with the headline, but that is the main feature of the person's life. It's almost like, yeah, you can't kick the dead. Well, we're not kicking the dead. We're just trying to tell the truthful story tell of their life. Tell the truth, right? So tell the truth and report it fully is there one of the go. four yeah. tenets of the Society <laughs> of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, which I used to show to my staff. I painted it on the students, wall in our conference room. And, at I, the and I actually <laughs> believe those are great things to be thinking about. Yeah. But there's a lot of gray in there sometimes. There so in telling the truth and reporting it fully and weighing it against minimize harm, and who are we harming and who are we not harming? What's the value of the news? And these are judgments that we make. And sometimes we hit the mark and sometimes our decisions are open for debate. So in a case like uh, Jim Brown, it's not a question of whether to include those things in the obituary. That is part of his life. It mm -hmm. would be a mistake not to. The question in my mind then becomes where do you put it in the story? You know, what were his most compelling, interesting, what should he be remembered for in the lead? And as editors and writers, we know that we anguish over just the construction of the whole story and how we started and what to include in it. Should that be part of the first sentence? Mm -hmm. right. and, this, and this affected my consumption of this story because I, I first heard about this on Twitter. And the Twitter, the leads on the story did not include the charges of abusing women. So I'm reading these stories all day thinking, oh, wow, what a great football player. That's too bad. And it wasn't should until have read I the second graph. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the second graph wasn't tweeted. You know, that's the uh, right. problem. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I followed a link to a real story that I got the full measure of, of this person and who died. I think in Jim Brown's case, I think they handled it fairly deftly. But again, it, it does depend on what's in that lead, what's in the second graph, and how significant it was. If, if someone did something and then had 40 or 50 years of not doing anything wrong, none of, of being a, a, fair, a good citizen, I mean, that has to be taken in consideration. That's why artificial intelligence just can't rip out these obituaries. That's true, too. And that stuff had to be mentioned about him in the mm -hmm. story, and I think high in the story, and it was part of him. He was a real person, and he had some great aspects, and he had some you know terrible aspects. You do get nailed by, in politics, especially when you're writing about politicians, or recall a local politician who uh, was convicted of crimes, who the family was incensed when uh, our story mentioned his conviction upon his death. Well, my goodness sakes, you know, you, that is sort of essential. And the same thing, of course, is true of any kind of conflict that you write about, but you're respectful to a person in death, but you don't lie for them anymore. And or, people <laughs> need to understand the difference between the news and the paid mm -hmm. obituaries, which you discussed a minute ago, that we can remember the time when the obituaries were not paid, they were considered news, and we would craft them as 
best that we could in a neutral way. And occasionally you would come up with somebody in an ordinary local obituary who was you know, a public figure and had done things wrong that you would put in there and this family would be hurt and incensed about it. And then when it changed to paid obituaries, that was a tough thing to swallow for me because it took away the news of the obituary, took the control out of the publisher and put it into the control of the family. I've come to accept that now. <laughs> well, and, but, but you but, still do news obituaries. The, the, the but, obituaries are paid. There are still news stories when prominent figures die that you right. go ahead and that's what we're talking right. about and the, here. That exactly. Kind of and the readers need to understand the right. difference when right. it's a mm -hmm. news story. Mm -hmm. You need to tell the full story. Right. The family often wants a eulogy, a yeah. printed eulogy instead of the truth. And the other thing we should keep in mind is there are a lot of obituaries we write that we're not able to tell the full story of a person because it's not on the public record or there's just rumors. I mean, there are a lot of people, we don't know everything that has happened in their life. All right. Again, your thoughts, folks, media at WMC.org. We promise we're going to talk about bogus news. You talk about something locally that is really quite remarkable. The New York Post published this story this month that a, a group of 20 homeless military veterans had been evicted from a couple of uh, hotels in the Hudson Valley to make room for migrants who had settled in New York City. The New York Post claiming that the migrants were part of uh, Mayor Eric Adams' plan to secure temporary housing for those out of New York City. Untrue. It was not true at all. The New York Post, were they willingly misled? It was worse than not true. Yeah, it was actually fabricated, and the fabrication was created by a woman who was apparently, I don't know what the motivation was, but somebody who had worked with veterans who ran a not-for-profit, but a local outlet, again, shades of the news leader we were talking about in George Santos's case, the Mid-Hudson News, a small local outfit, reported that not only had no homeless veterans been removed, but they were never there to begin with. So it was all a fabricated story, but by the time it fell apart, the, the right-wing media machine had just picked this up like crazy. Oh, and well, this story is still out there and is being promoted as true in some realms. Getting a false story out is easy. Correcting it or pulling it back is almost impossible. I think there's more, must be more to come on this story because why this person did this director of the nonprofit did what she did is still a mystery to us all. But it, the right-wing media took this and promoted it and I saw politicians promote this as the truth. It just goes to show you, you really do have to check and double check and triple check when people tell you things because it was reported as true and they were taking the, the word of officials that it was true and it was it was bolstering a narrative that the right wing wanted to bolster but again he needs to know a little it's bit it's the knee jerk reaction it reminds me of when you saw the tweet about Jim Brown and said what a great guy this yeah. is yeah. Um, but this is a lot worse because you read on and learned about the person and then you knew not to repeat and untruth. I don't know that there's any concern among these far-right people that are, they're not all that far either, that are repeating <laughs> and not going around correcting what has been yeah. clearly stated now that this did not happen, that these but veterans you know, were homeless people paid to pretend, pretend that they were veterans. You know, even somebody who seemed like could be a reasonable person like Nikki Haley went down the rabbit hole. And well, yeah, but, you know, it, it came to her through the media. And so that's why the media has the responsibility for this. And, you know, you tell young journalists the saying they say in journalism programs, if your mama says she loves you, check, check it out. Check it out. Yeah, but she <laughs> tweeted a link to the New York Post story. Uh-huh. So we're all, all of these people now saying, 
well, we were hoodwinked. Be careful. Right. They have to try to have their supporters unhear what they've been and told. And they're not doing that. And the consequences were, are substantial because it further vilifies migrants and colors them as, as people who are making homeless veterans leave their place of residence. And definitely a bad thing. Well, let's give credit to the Mid-Hudson News for uncovering that 15 homeless men were paid to pretend that they were veterans who had been staying at the hotel. So, uh, I mean, I guess this kind of goes to the thing we were talking about earlier, the hollowed-out newsrooms. Here's a small newsroom that managed to do the truth-telling responsibility well and uh, found out that the big New York Post was sloppy in its research. Yeah, and they did what, what we would consider basic reporting. Wow, there's this story going on. Let's getting nail out of it their down. car or their office and going over and which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> Imagine that. All right, before we leave, we have to say a word about the missing voice here. This is the second show without Alan, and it's been announced that Alan Shartok has retired as the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, the creator of this program 30-some years ago. Which he reminded us of repeatedly. Yeah, right. (laughs) I gave you this show. You know, Alan created it with uh, the late Gary Fryer, the press secretary to Mario Cuomo, and invited some of us on over the years, and here we are still. But, uh, boy, quite a voice, huh? Yeah, we'll definitely miss him, and I really thank him for this opportunity for creating the show. It's been kind of a wild ride. I, we will miss his sarcasm, his wisdom, his experience. Well, let's not get carried away here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he were here, I would say that, of course. Yeah, I think we could celebrate him his retirement uh-huh. and wish him much happiness in his retirement. And, yeah, he's got a great legacy at this station. Quite remarkable, yeah. huh? All right. And if you're uh, listening, Alan, you know, we expect to uh, hear from you on the phone saying, no, I didn't say that. Yeah, All right. And write us. <laughs> and about Fire Island. Yeah. And that, too. We yeah. So we'll bring up some of the stories every now and then just for the old times. All right. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us on The Media Project. Barbara Lombardo and Judy Patrick and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, Dave Gustina, for making this possible. And to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. To her uncle in Now newspaper men meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's uncle. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling, ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith. Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Barbara Lombardo, former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. 
Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.